0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell. Merry Christmas and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Neufeld. Today we're continuing our series, Christmas in the First Testament, as Dr. Neufeld brings us a message entitled, Christmas in the Psalms. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 2 as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: Psalm 2 begins by asking a very pointed question. Why it asks do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain i mean why well now what exactly are we talking about who exactly is raging who's plotting what nefarious deeds are they cooking up behind closed doors now when we think about raging we might think about the ceaseless competition between the nations and while i'm recording this at this christmas we've been in a global pandemic now for over 10 months But there have been good news. Various companies have announced that they have a highly effective vaccine and, if administered on a massive global scale, can bring this disease to an end. So there is hope in the air. But even so, the raging of the nations has again raised its head. Who will receive the vaccine first? How far behind or how far back in the line are we? How much longer will we have to wait? Will it be months or half a year or even further behind? And so even while at the beginning, all the right words were said about, you know, sharing equitably among the nations, well, the spirit of brotherhood is quickly evaporating as we wonder how many more in our nation will die while we wait. Let's get ahead of other nations. Why do the nations rage? Well, they rage because they're in competition with each other. They rage because they mistrust each other. They rage because they remember the injustices the other has done. They rage because they wish to further their own agenda and see the other nations as an impediment to their national goals. They rage, and wars are the result. That's just a fact of history. The nations rage. But Psalm 2 is not asking the question of why nations in general rage. Psalm 2 is asking a very different question. Indeed, the question is not, Why do nations do such harm to each other? Rather, Psalm 2 is asking about a very specific kind of raging. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You know, the Hebrew word for anointed, well, that's the word Mashiach. Uh, They rage and they plot. They form alliances, all to mount an offense against the Lord, the God of the earth, and against his chosen Messiah. Ah, that's the kind of rage we're talking about. And the minute you hear that, your mind might be taken back to that part of the Christmas story when the Magi have entered into Jerusalem and they've caused quite a stir. And they want to know from King Herod where the king of the Jews has been born. And as I pointed out yesterday, that's a reference to the promise that had been made to King David some 1,000 years earlier. See, one of David's descendants would sit on his throne, and he would rule there for eternity, ruling over the entire earth. And Herod immediately goes into action. He rages. He plots. He tells the magi to thoroughly look for the child, and once he's found, to let him know where he is so that he can come and worship him. But of course, that's not what he has in mind. He's he's plotting. He wants to find him, and he wants to kill him. You know, the third verse in Psalm 2 says that the kings are saying of God and his Messiah, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is, let us get out from under this oppressive dominion of this kingdom. We want our freedom to rule ourselves without his troublesome intervention. And of course, as we know, Herod, seeing that he was outwitted by the Magi, sends his troops into the tiny village of Bethlehem, and he slaughters every boy two years old and under. No matter the carnage, no matter the death, anything must be done, even if it's an outrage, to stop the Lord and to stop his Messiah. Yeah, one author called that the long war against God. That's what the nations are raging about, and that's why it's not possible to tell the Christmas story without telling the story of Mary and Joseph fleeing as fast as they can to get to Egypt, probably going to Alexandria, which at that time had the highest Jewish population. They wanted to blend in so that no one would know that they're carrying with them the Lord's Christ. Shortly after the raging of Herod, Herod dies. Just like that, the menace is gone. And what do Mary and Joseph do? And why not go home? But wait, the raging of the nations is not done. Mary and Joseph didn't raise their son in the place where you might have expected the next king of Israel to have been raised, that is, in Jerusalem or maybe even in Bethlehem. They're terrified to go there. Archelaus was one of Herod's sons, and everyone knew that he displayed the same kind of wanton cruelty his father had displayed. Archelaus was certainly to be classed among the ragers who wanted to throw off the shackles of the hope of the Messiah. And so it turns out that, yes, there are things in the Psalms that really do set the stage for understanding the birth of Jesus. But actually, there's very little about the birth of Jesus in the Psalms and a great deal about his life. But before I get to that, let's get back to Psalm 2. You know, that Psalm is a poetic depiction of what I spoke about yesterday, that of 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Lord's promise that he would establish the throne of David forever and that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule the world without end. And so Psalm 2 has both a short-term and a long-term application. And the short-term application speaks entirely of the life of David. And if you listened yesterday, you heard me say that David had been a brilliant king. He very quickly established Jerusalem as his capital. He drove out invading nations from the land, and then in a, in a series of wars— Conducted first on the west and then on the east and then on the north, he's able to secure his borders and pacify kings and nations who once made their trade in constantly attacking Israel. He brought them to heel and he ruled over them, to which the kings around him were raging, plotting, forming alliances to mount a counterstrike. But the psalm is not done, so let's read verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So it was not David who, through cunning and strength, managed to get the kingship and then to have had such a brilliant start to his reign. See, the psalm says it was God who sovereignly declared that David would do what he had done, When David captured Jerusalem and made it his capital, God was saying, look what I've done. I've installed my king on this holy hill called Zion or Jerusalem. Psalm 2 is not done. Suddenly, David, the king, breaks in and he describes what God was up to when he installed him as king in Jerusalem. Verses 7 to 9, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage "'and the ends of the earth your possession. "'You shall break them with a rod of iron "'and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel.'" That sounds violent. But please remember, we're not talking about any old king against any other king. We're not talking about the constant turbulence and the tumult you know, among nation against nation. Rather, we're talking about the reign of God and of his chosen Messiah, And that's where this psalm suddenly takes on a dimension which goes so much further than David. This psalm is not about David defeating the enemies of Israel and holding them at bay. Rather, this psalm is about David's greater son, the Messiah, who is not destined to rule only the Middle East. He's destined to rule all nations. To rebel against the Messiah is to rebel against God. The good news at Christmas is that the rightful ruler of the nations has been born. The command at Christmas is not to give presents. The command comes to us in the last verse of Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the message of Christmas. Kiss the son, lest you perish in the way. Join the shepherds and wise men, kneel before him in reverence, for this is your God and this is your ruler. Submit to his reign, lest he crush you under his feet. How foolish we've been to allow sentimentality to shape our view of Christmas. How easy to describe Christmas as family celebrations. How foolish we've been. The spirit of Christmas is to serve your Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling. For the Messiah will not only rule the nations, he will vanquish this sin-cursed earth and bring all things under his reign. Disease will be destroyed, as will hate and all unrighteousness. That's Christmas, that's why we celebrate.
0: As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day. Through our radio bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources while buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly it's a cost we believe is of high value all of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you and this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year and strong for the new year ahead our goal for december 31st is to raise $376,000. To support our ministry work, please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I've been talking about the richness of celebrating Christmas from the First Testament. And as you've guessed, today I'm looking at the Psalms. And as you know, the Psalms are not just one book, but they're a collection of 150 poems and songs of worship. They were used in worship in Israel, and they're still being used in worship in the church. But did you also know that the New Testament contains more than 100 quotations from the Psalms? And the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, are filled with quotations from the Psalms. But there are a number of psalms that have been called messianic psalms. So let me give you a number of examples. You might remember that while on the cross, Jesus quoted from Psalm 22. You remember he quoted verse 1. The entire verse says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So much of what David says in the psalms sound so much like Jesus hanging on a cross. Look at verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then look at verses 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now, it needs to be said that when David spoke about his enemies encircling him, he's speaking about his own experiences, but that's the point. Jesus is David's greater son. From his birth onward, he was hunted by his enemy, and on the cross, the enemy surrounded him like a pack of dogs. I have a memory of being hunted by dogs. Kathy and I had taken a long walk in the mountains on the outside of a Christian camp where I was speaking. As we were on a long trek back, suddenly three large, aggressive, very violent dogs descended on us. As it so happened, that day was cloudy and overcast and we had decided to take our umbrellas with us. I said, Kathy, quick, open your umbrellas. I open mine and put them in front of us as a shield. You know, it startled the dogs. They came to a halt. They encircled us and we kept our umbrellas out as they growled looking for a place to attack. And then amazingly, The alpha dog, and I could see him do it, signaled to the others, and they turned and walked away. I felt a huge sigh of relief, for I know they could have killed us. But from that day onward, I've never forgotten what it felt like to be hunted by dogs. That was the life of Jesus. From birth to his crucifixion, the dogs were encircling him so that when they finally had him on the cross, they gloated over him and cast lots for his clothing. Psalm 22 is an accurate description of the life of Jesus. Or for another psalm that's easily attributed to the grief that Jesus felt, well, consider Psalm 69. Verses 1 and 2 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Then go to verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Did you know that that verse is quoted in John 15:25? Jesus was telling his disciples that if the world hates them, well, they should remember that the world hated him long before it hated them. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. He's quoting from Psalm 69, and Jesus sees it fulfilled in him. But Jesus also quoted from Psalm 69, verse 9, after he drove the money changers out of the temple for the first time. He said, zeal for your house will consume me. There are a number of other Psalms that are closely related to Jesus. Psalm 110 has often been called a royal psalm because it's a psalm related to the king of Israel. And the psalmist who writes this psalm again is King David. Uh, Let's begin by reading verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so says David, the Lord, who is God, said something to my Lord. Now, that phrase, my Lord, has given rise to a number of different interpretations, Many believe that God is simply speaking to someone's superior. But who is David's superior? That David would say, God spoke to the person who is superior over me. So who's that? Well, Jesus had something to say about that psalm. It's found in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 42. Now, while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. So notice that Jesus is not reacting to the Pharisees here. He's taking the initiative. He's raising the point. What about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And of course, it's not a hard question. Everyone has taken Theology 101 knows the answer. The only person that qualifies for that office is someone who's a direct descendant of King David. Well, good, says Jesus, so you've passed the exam. But now it's time to do some Bible study And we're going to be looking at Psalm 110. So let's read what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 43 to 46. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. But Jesus left the question hanging there. And that's because he knew that not only was the Messiah the direct descendant of David, but that the Messiah was David's superior. He was David's Lord. That's the wonder of Christmas. We might also say that Jesus indeed is the son of Mary, but he's Mary's Lord. And that's what David in Psalm 110 recognizes. As Jesus says, he knew it by the Spirit. The Messiah is the Lord. Now back to Psalm 110. I'm reading verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And here we get a picture of God the Father speaking to God the Son, who's the Messiah. The Father tells David's greater son, who is also David's Lord, here's your assignment. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And we might here think of Jesus' ministry. He heals the sick. He drives out demons. He commands nature. He's carrying on the work of the kingdom of God, even while the dogs are encircling him. The Pharisees who seek to kill him, they can't stop him from his appointed reign. But still, Psalm 110 is not finished. Not only does the father proclaim the son to be the great king, but Psalm 110 verse four gives the Messiah a second title. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, no Israelite king ever served as a priest. The kings were from the tribe of Judah, but the priests were from the tribe of Levi. I could take a great deal of time here and show that from the book of Hebrews, Jesus not only holds the office of king, but he also holds the office of priest, who is our advocate before the Father and who comes into the Father's presence, offering his own blood as our sacrifice. Well, that's anticipated in Psalm 110, but let's move on. Come to the end of Psalm 110, that is, verses five to seven. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. By now, this language should sound familiar. That's how Psalm 2 ended. Don't take the Messiah lightly. Don't have the picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild who would never take up a rod of iron and so demonstrate his unbreakable rule over the raging nations. Instead, understand that the child in the manger is destined to shatter the chiefs of the earth. Well, you and I know that the ministry of Jesus is divided into two sections. There is the ministry of his first coming and the ministry of his second coming. In his first coming, he offers consolation peace with God, liberation from the demons that torment and from the ills that afflict. He came to offer hope to the traitor and the prostitute, to the outcast and even to the Gentile who's estranged from the covenant of God. Now he comes as a child to stretch out a hand of mercy and offer reconciliation and peace. How wise we are when we fall before the manger and call him Lord and God. What grace that so great and awesome a God would approach us in such humility. But should we scorn his grace, we're suddenly confronted by the one who shatters the kings of the earth on the day of his wrath. And Christmas reminds us that the door of mercy is still open, but it also reminds us not to misunderstand who came to us in a manger. This is no sentimental story, but rather this is the story of the great warrior who eventually conquers the whole earth.
0: Thanks so much for your message today, John. You know, and I think you would agree with this, that it's it's critical, isn't it, to understand the Christ child that came in humility, but also the significance of the coming King.
1: Yeah, we've always got to superimpose those two concepts. I mean, I mean Paul, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, reminds us that, you know, that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, you know, the way an, an ancient pirate might grasp treasure, but he laid aside his glory and came in the lowest form possible. So that's important. But at the same time, uh, let's not misunderstand what we're looking at. The one who is condescended to speak to us in this fashion is still the one and only God. And so for anyone to, you know, um, not take the one and only God seriously is the greatest mistake that we can make in our lives a mistake that we would rue for all of eternity. So it is right, I think, that uh, what Psalm 2 says, kiss the sun, and that's what we must do.
0: Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Christmas in the First Testament, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. (laughs) Ricardo wrote thank you and all the men and women of back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do you continue to inspire my spiritual growth and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute all praise and glory to God Ricardo thank you friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of back to the Bible Canada Well, with your financial contribution or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.